Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to author Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. This week, our host, Dr. Lynn Koig, is joined by Amanda Bedsra. Amanda is an award-winning author with much of her work grounded in the redeeming, empowering, and transformative power of God's love. Her debut book, The Love That Set Me Free, was met with critical acclaim with readers recognizing themselves and finding healing through her autobiographical account of childhood abuse, suppression, and trauma. Since then, she has authored several instructional guides for living life fully according to God's will, including Five Habits of Godly Resilient Women, Overcoming the Fear of Death, and Praying Proverbs. She has also designed and published two journals for developing the art of kindness. Becoming Queen Bathsheba is her second piece of Christian fiction, following on from the successful Leia. It is set to become another bestseller in a series of novels based on women in the Bible. When she is not writing, speaking, teaching the Bible, or coaching, Amanda can be found desperately searching for the next quaint coffee house in which to curl up with a book. Welcome to Alabaster Jar, Amanda. I'm so delighted that you're joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pressure to be here today. Oh, well, thank you. I, um, I'm so excited to talk about becoming Queen Bathsheba. And it's kind of an interesting story how we connected. Uh, actually, I don't know if we were on the continent of Africa at the same time or not. Me on the East Coast in Kenya, you on the West Coast in Nigeria. Uh, and now you're in the UK, an accomplished, I mean, you, you're a law graduate from the University of uh, Wolverhampton. Now you're living up in Kent. Um, so you've kind of been all over, but we met in Nashville, Tennessee. We did. <laughs> so, uh, that, that was just really fun. Do you want to, uh, talk just a little bit about how our stories connected this past May? So I, I came as a guest to Lisa Harper's, um, debut conference, Kerygma, and you were one of the, you were one of the teachers at the conference. And um, listen to you teach the night before um, and listen to a panel session that had Dr. McKnight and, and, and a few other people. And there was something that he said about Bathsheba's story that impacted me in ways that I can't even begin to put into words. And so we officially met when I came to talk to you about it because you weren't sitting too far away from me. And there was something that... Um, no, actually, I came to talk to you about the Samaritan woman and um, a possible interpretation that I had about the Samaritan woman. I wanted to check that with you. And then I went on to tell you the story um, of this novel and what Dr. McKnight had said and how it had impacted me. And that's how we started talking about this book. Oh, yes. it, it uh, th This conference, Kerygma, by um, hosted by Lisa Harper. There'll be another one next year. I think it's in April, not in May. This coming year, uh, it'll be in April. Um, so I encourage uh, my listeners to check that out. Um, but yeah, the the topic with Bathsheba, do you want to tell us a little bit more about the specific question uh, that came up? Because it does relate actually to becoming ba uh, Queen Bathsheba, the book, seeing the light of day in print. Yes, it does actually. So what had happened was 
when when I came to the conference in May, I, I finished writing the book in December, had it edited, and I because I felt like it was such a God project, I wanted to send it out to different publishers and I wanted to break into the American market. So I sent it to an American publisher and a UK publisher and a few other publishers. And two of the publishers I sent um, the manuscript to both came back with the same undertone that their readers were going to reject the book and they were not interested in wanting to publish the book not because it wasn't well written you know i'm happy to say that the first feedback was this is a really um well written book but they weren't comfortable with the um perception of david raping Bathsheba as i had told it in in the book and i knew that it was something that god had asked me to do it's it really is a god project and i knew that i was going to publish the book anyway but what I didn't realize was how much it had knocked my confidence and how much I was afraid of my own story, not able to own my story. And I was going to share it anyway, but I had built up these walls that I was ready to stand behind to defend what I believe that God had put on my heart. And as I sat at that conference, there was um, a panel session, and I think it was Dr. Whitehead who started the conversation with something around the, the lines of cultural interpretations to Bible scriptures. And he gave an example. He said the Americans would interpret what happened with David as, and Bathsheba as adultery, but the Africans would interpret it as an abuse of power. And he talked about the cultural interpretations that we can bring into the way we read the Bible. And that was my first light bulb moment. So I'm asking myself, oh, am I thinking this because I'm African? Um, but then I kind of put that to one side and then other people spoke. But then Dr. Scott McKnight, he, he came and then he started talking about this story to um, buttress what had been said earlier. And he said he had that view and his views had changed. And he, he's sitting there on this stage and he says, but David raped Bathsheba. And for me... I, oh gosh, I was so undone. I sat there and I was like, I, I can't believe that I've just heard this man that I respect, this theologian say these words. It was like God was speaking to me. And I remember after the session, the first person I went to was, was Lisa and I wept like a baby in her arms. I was like, thank you so much for putting this conference together because this has brought me freedom from a bondage that I didn't even know that I was walking in. To hear him say that, it just freed me to receive my story, to own my story, and also to have that assurance that I heard from God, because there's that fine line between what you think and what you feel like the Holy Spirit is guiding you towards. And it was just freedom for me. It was oh. so powerful. Oh, that, yes, that, well, that's very exciting. It's wonderful for me to hear the story one more time. I mean, I was there kind of live as you were sharing it to me a couple of months ago. And, you know, as, as you're retelling it, I'm thinking adultery, perhaps from the standpoint of Uriah, maybe, but rape from the perspective of Bathsheba. And, and I think there's so much that we can unpack here, but I, I begged you, um, for a PDF of the manuscript, and you were gracious to send it to me. And I'm sitting there in the airport, 
uh, ready to leave early in the morning, and I start reading it. And honestly, I missed the first call to go on the plane. <laughs> Finally, my husband had to nudge me. Hey, hey, we got to get on the plane now. I'm like so into this novel. So well written uh, and, and riveting. Um, so what what drew you? Talk, talk a little bit about, to, uh, um, about what drew you to write uh, this, this novel. And maybe a, as you do, maybe walk, walk out the story for us that's that you present in, in this novel? Um, it started with a question in my heart. I remember many years ago thinking, what would it have been like to be married to a man that defiled you and murdered your husband? And it was a question that sat with me for many years and I, I read a few books about her story. I read both fiction and nonfiction and I didn't find anything that answered that one question. I grew up in a Christian home and I always remember hearing the Bathsheba story from that position of adultery um, based on her perceived seduction of the king because she was, you know, um, out bathing naked. Um, but then there was that question about what if she was a woman who truly loved her husband, who was minding her business, but was a victim of an abuse of power? And I couldn't shake this thought as the possibility of the story kept growing. I felt drawn to her. I felt drawn to her story. And I started feeling sorry for her because for many years, this is a woman that has been so misunderstood. And we've had one side of the story. And I'm not a fan of a one-sided story. I believe that there's her side, his side, and somewhere in the middle is the truth. And, you know, in this scenario... Bathsheba's side and Davy's side and, and the God story, which, you know, we, we will find out at the end, um, hopefully. But I wanted to offer another side of the story. I wanted to offer another point of view. I wanted to unpack that narrative of her being a woman who was truly in love with her husband, who had a good marriage, but was subject to an abuse of power and the impacts that that had on her and the impact that it's had on so many other women who have found themselves um, unfortunately in this situation to offer possibly another truth to what the Bible um, says. So I read the literal translation of the Bible and I use the word literal because I know that you can have some cultural context and some theological context and have some more meaningful meanings of Bible words that would perhaps put a different light to the story. But I wanted to read the story like I was just an everyday girl reading the Bible and writing the story from that perspective, but also bringing um, as much research and history as I could into the story to make it um, to make it real. I mean, how do you write a whole book after two, out of two chapters um, of the Bible? The other thing that really drew me to this story a few years ago um, was the wake of the Me Too movement with many women who had endured an abuse of power without the freedom to speak about it um, for the fear of not being believed. And I feel that this rings true for Bathsheba even today. She's a woman who we're having this conversation and it's kind of like, was it adultery? Wasn't it adultery? Was she naked? Was it seduction? You know, would she have been one of those women that in this time, would have run the risk of not being believed, would have carried that fear 
of not being believed, where people would have been asking the questions that sometimes we find being asked today. Well, why were you dressed like that? Why were you coming home late? You shouldn't have been there. So that we are removing the wrongdoing and placing a lot of blame on the victim. And that made my heart break for Bathsheba in a way that I wanted to tell the story, but tell it from her point of view. And so the novel is written in, in, first, in first person because I wanted to capture her voice. I wanted to get to the root of those emotions and give her something that I feel like she would have lost as a woman in a culture that we know at the time women didn't really have a voice. And that's what prompted me to write the book. I want to say that God said so. Um, that's not an original answer. There were so many other things and it took so many years of thinking about the story, but also getting the courage to write the story and, you know, have it what it is today. Well, and it, it reads, um, as your publishers had indicated, so beautifully. And also there is that personalness of Bathsheba sharing, as you say, in the first person. One of the things that I love about the the novel is it takes very seriously the statement in the biblical text that she was performing um, uh, ritual purity rites um, after her menstrual pe uh, period. So part of that in the story affirms to the readers that whatever comes next, um, she's not pregnant at the time. So when she gets pregnant, it's very clear it's David's child and not Uriah. So I understand part of that is for people to be clear, the reader to be clear whose child it's going to be. But I also think it's been brushed over by readers who don't take the time to think, well, what does the ritual purity um, act look like in ancient uh, Israel. Um, you know, you mentioned a little bit earlier, was she naked? I mean, she doesn't have a jacuzzi in her backyard, right? I think that's how people sometimes imagine this, you know. Um, she's actually performing a, a, a purity rite. So she's an upstanding Jewish woman. And you bring that out so well, and you tie it in with her desire to have children. Can you talk a little bit about um, what led you to develop that possibility and that side of Bathsheba? And talk to us a little bit about, you know, you can fill in the readers with, with um, how you developed that in the novel. So, you know, like you said, it's a part of scripture that is so easily glanced over. But when I was reading the story again, preparing to write the novel, there was just something about, about that bit that stood out for me. So I had to go and research, what does the purity rites look like? Because, you know, the Bible says that she, she had to do that, you know, she, she had just been cleansing from her monthly, um, I can't remember the way that it, it's actually written, but it alludes to that fact. And I wanted to understand what the purity rites look like. And as I started to research Jewish history and um some of the rituals that they have to do and you know of course they have to be naked and they have to um go in to be submerged into a bath um to be cleansed and some of the other things that i share in the book i'm trying not to give it too much give too much away for people that are going to read it it's 
it made me understand why she was out there naked. It also made me understand that it was possible that she wasn't even in her back garden. She wasn't even in her house. She could have gone to somewhere that was an allocated um cleansing ritual place for women because as we know you know we read all these stories in the bible about men not wanting to be unclean and if a woman was within um, a certain time of the month she had to be separated from her household so that she didn't make other people unclean and there were places that they could go and you know you would take a dove and you would take or take a pigeon and there's all these things that we see in other parts of the bible that even though this part of the story did not explain in detail but there's still things that she would have had to do. So that was the first thing that jumped to my mind, that this wasn't a woman that was possibly in her back garden. She would have been somewhere else, um, maybe in the temple or maybe somewhere not so far from the temple, which then gave David vision, isn't it? Because he's standing at the rooftop and he's looking down. He's got the advantage of height. But what are the things that he can see around him? It might not have been houses, it might have been a temple, or it might have been a place of worship that would historically not have been unlikely to be close to somewhere that is like the king's palace. And so that revelation made me expand that bit of the story to try to give the readers another rationale or an understanding for why she was presenting in the way that she did. But like you also said, it alludes to the fact that once she wasn't pregnant, it could also allude to the fact that she was at the optimum time to get pregnant, um, at, at the time that she would have been most fertile, which meant that even just that one night with the king was enough to impregnate her. So that was another, um, that, that, that could have been another explanation for why the Bible put that line in the story. Yeah, yeah. You also paint a picture, a beautiful picture of Bathsheba's marriage to Uriah um, and the hurt that she feels when he doesn't visit her, when he comes back to Jerusalem. You know, David calls him back from the front line and he doesn't go to see her. And um, that that was a very moving part of the of the story for me. You kind of not only bring Bathsheba to life, but we find out a little bit about Uriah. Why did you decide to make him so much, or her interaction with him, so much a part of the story? I think I wanted to bring the humanness into the story in a way that people can relate to. I mean, you know, I, I've been married for almost 18 years now, and I can't imagine what it would be like if my husband had been away for months and he has an opportunity to come home but he doesn't come home to me, that would have been painful. How do you deal with that? And in a society that would have been so close knit together, like people talk, he, he, he wasn't hiding in the palace. He was, you know, he slept in the servants' quarters. He was a guest of the king. He was, you know, drinking to the point of being drunk and eating food and he was merry. People would have seen him, but he still chose not to go home. And that rejection, whatever the reason was, from Bathsheba's perspective, it would have been painful. I mean, Lynn, how would you feel if this was you and, you know, your husband was so close, but he didn't come home to you? So I wanted to, I wanted to be able to capture that. It was a painful part of the story to write, but I think it was a necessary part of the story to write. So that I touch on that issue of rejection and 
and, and articulate the bond that I was trying to create between Uriah and Bathsheba, even though the Bible doesn't tell us that, you know, they had a good marriage. The Bible also doesn't tell us that they had a bad marriage. In fact, when we look at 2 um, Samuel 12, kind of around the end when she finds out that Uriah is dead, the Bible says she mourns for her husband. Um, one, of, one version of the Bible says she laments at the, you know, at the news of the death of Uriah. So there must have been some kind of relationship, I would think, between husband and wife. And I didn't want an opportunity to miss not sharing that so that the readers could um, be invested in, in Uriah as a person, but also be invested in Bathsheba um, as a wife. No, I, that is, um, well, and, and I think it also is kind of a logical assumption from the starting point of Bathsheba did not try and lure King David. She wasn't an active participant in adultery. She was happily married and proud of her husband who was out fighting uh, for Israel, doing his job um, uh, for his, you know, for his country. Yeah, that, um, okay, so I want to move to kind of the uh, heart of the story that uh, you alluded to when we first started, and I, I want to preface my question by citing a line at the end of your novel where you say, my purpose in writing this novel is not to make David out as the bad guy. Far from it. David has always and will continue to be one of my favorite Bible heroes. But the lesson here is that good people can do some very bad things. But where there is true repentance with God, it can work out for good. So I want to set this up because we move into it. I think perhaps almost the hardest part of the story for me, which is Bathsheba has her child. She goes to live now with King David, and she has the child who doesn't survive, and then she becomes his wife. And as I've said, several times already. This is a fabulous book, but here in this spot to me is where I almost had my breath taken away as you really dive into the uh, complexity of emotion that it seems like Bathsheba, if she was a normal woman, which I think she is, would have would have felt. So yeah, you you don't give quick and easy forgiveness steps. You don't you don't jump through what was her pain. Can you walk us through what it was like to write about this part of her story? That was the hardest part of the story to write. It was it was difficult. There there are no words to describe the loss of a child. At any stage, whether it's intentional or unintentional, whether it was, when I use the word intentional, whether you had an abortion or if, you, if it was a miscarriage or a stillborn, whatever age a child dies, there's just no words to describe the pain. And for Bathsheba, her grief had to stay in the now. We have the benefits of reading the Bible and we know how the story ends. We know, we know that there's Solomon. We know that there's, you know, there's redemption. We know that part, but she didn't. And so I needed to capture the story in a way that reflected that she was living in 
the not knowing what the next step was going to be and the pain that she would have had to endure. It was her only child, her first, well, not only child, at the time, her only child, her first child. And with all the things that would have led to the child even being conceived and even being born, to lose the child, it, it was just difficult to write. But I knew, you know, and this is where the Holy Spirit is saying to me, just keep writing, just, just keep going. There were times I shot my laptop, to be honest. I was like, God, I can't write this. I, I don't want to write this bit. I don't want to be the one that writes how a child dies. But I needed to do that bit. I also struggled as to whether to give Bathsheba the explanation for why the child died, because that's the other bit that we get the benefit of knowing. But did she know then? But I thought that it was important for her to know. And I'm grateful that I could write the character of Ahithopel, who is one of David's elders and assuming um, what Bible history says that he's the father of Eliam means that he's her grandfather. So he would have had some kind of a relationship with Bathsheba. So I was able to write that aspect of the story that gives her the explanation for the death of her son. And the reason I felt that she needed to know was because there had to be closure, there had to be true forgiveness, there had to be that redemption and restoration. And as much as I'm trying not to give too much of the story away, um, you've read this book, I think you've read it twice now, and you know that she's complicit in some of the deception around the child because she goes into mother survival mode for this child. So she's complicit in some of that deception. So there was there was a burden that she would have had to carry and some healing that would have had to come out of not just losing the child, but some of the things that she had to do or she was willing to do to protect the child. But the thing that I also wanted to show is us as humans, we can put all our energy into all these man-made plans that don't come into fruition but we need to give God room to work. And God will work with our brokenness, but not our deception. And I try to draw that principle out in the story because you really can't appreciate wholeness until you experience pain and brokenness. And so I needed to, I needed to draw that out, but isn't God so faithful that he doesn't end with brokenness? The story can start there. The story can find itself somewhere in the middle, but God doesn't end with brokenness. And he really does give beauty from ashes. So the ashes had to happen. And then God's beauty came out um, in the end. Well, at least in the way that I've written the story, God's beauty shines through. Amanda, I'm going to jump in here with a quick question. As listeners, this is Serene here. And um, I'm just thinking as you've been sharing uh, the heart behind why you uh, wrote the this novel, um, and even the lens through which we typically hear this story told, this brings some uh, just a fresh perspective into it that I think is so needed. And I've been reflecting on uh, just our own understandings of power dynamics and privilege and how that can even affect the way that we perceive these stories when we come to them in scripture. Um, but I was so encouraged by, even as you shared the healing that you have experienced through um, your experience at the conference where you met Lynn and just the journey of writing this novel. And I wonder, what does that look like for us in our own experiences when we come to scripture um, 
And what would you say to our listeners who um, maybe feel encouraged by your approach to this story? How can they apply this approach to their own studies of scripture? That's a really good question. Um, (laughs) How can you apply this to your reading of scripture? I think the first thing that I enjoy with Bible fiction is humanizing characters that are easy to just be seen as, okay, this happened, this is a woman from 2000 years ago, and it's just a story. But being able to humanize them in the way that you know, you you identify with their thoughts and their emotions and you see them as people just like us, it it can change the way that you read the Bible so that it's not just a book of instructions or it's not just a book or it's not just some kind of fairy tale. These are real people, like we are real today, which means we can find ourselves in the stories in the Bible. We can start to not just read a text, but take the minute to study the the text and ask ourselves some of the questions that I've tried to answer in this book. How would I feel if this was me? Would I have done this different? How, how, How difficult would it have been for them to work through this scenario? How does this defer to what's happening today? Because when when we think about the lens through which we can read a story and sometimes interpret it from our perspective, we have to understand also that there's a difference with how things were then to how it is now. So I don't know whether it's something that you, it's a question that you were going to ask or it was something that we were going to touch on. But if I wanted to even talk about this subject of adultery and the lens that we have seen um, Bathsheba from, um, you know, a woman that was there naked and she seduced the king, which is some of the things that have been alluded to in terms of interpretation. In the culture that we live in right now, there might be a benefit to seducing a wealthy man there might be some kind of financial benefit or some kind of power benefit. But in the culture that they were then, when a woman that's caught in adultery can be stoned to death, and we see that in the New Testament, when it was something that was so shameful to do, what would have been the benefit for Bathsheba to seduce the king? What was in it for her? What would she have gained? And that's the other question that I had to ask myself if I was going to compare the the then to now, because I know that even today, yes, there there is abuse of power, but we've also seen the dynamics of when women abuse their beauty and use that as some kind of an abuse of power, it happens. But there's a benefit to us now in a way that it, it wouldn't have been then. So that's the other thing that sits with me. There was nothing that Bathsheba would have gained from seducing David. But also, how would she have known at what time she was going to he was going to be on the roof? Like there was no instant messaging service where somebody that's a friend in the palace <laughs> in the palace would have sent her a message that says, Oh, oh, and by the way, he's coming out now, he's going to be on the rooftop. How would she have known the exact moment to be there? You know, these are some of the things that we, we can unpick and we can kind of start to to think about in a different way that makes us have a different meaning to the story and we don't just read through without taking the point to ask questions. So I'm hoping that that's one thing that happens, that readers 
um, start to not question the Bible, but ask some of those questions that can make it a richer interpretation or um, uh, give room for more revelation of the word of God, or at best, give a deeper meaning to the word of God. Yeah, you touch on, I think, um, a a flaw in in not only the history of interpretation, but even today, where we tend to imagine, uh, men tend to uh, create in their imagination women as seducers. And as you say, there are some, a few, okay. But in general, I think the, the idea that, well, I just couldn't help myself, uh, a man saying this, a pastor saying this, you know, well, I just couldn't help myself, or... Um, you know, she somehow was inviting it. But that's a that's a really deep prejudice that we have in in the church um, that women are somehow they have to somehow be complicit in what was from even the narrator standpoint in the biblical text David's responsibility. David was supposed to be out at war. That's how the story starts. When the kings went out to war, and David stayed back. Also, Nathan, the prophet, does not call out Bathsheba at all, and he certainly could have, but instead he calls out uh, David for the, for the action. So I think that in, in the biblical text, it's clear where the fault lies, but we're just reluctant for some reason to release this image of a woman as in some way using her sexuality to cause a man to sin. And this has very serious ramifications, even today, with um, how we raise up young women as being responsible for young men's uh, sexual actions, and, and just kind of across the board. By writing the, the biblical text in a novel format, you invite us to, to experience the biblical text in in a way that allows us to step into the story even more. And it's so, so powerful. Have you uh, talked with any men who have read the story and what their thoughts are uh, having read it? Yes, I have. Um, I've had good responses and not so good responses. Actually, yesterday I was having a conversation with my husband um, talking about this podcast today and getting ready for, you know, answering the questions. And so I started asking, he had just finished reading it again. And so I started talking to him about it and he sits on the, it's clear that this is what David did, but he can't get his head around the fact that David is a man after God's own heart. And so I think that there's something about who we know David is. And it's so difficult to want to accept that somebody that is, you know, the, the way that God even talks about David can do something like this. And so I said to him, I, and, and, and which is why I put it in the novel to say, I love David. He's hands down a favorite Bible hero of all time. And David doesn't even deny this, by the way. So it's 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 funny how we we are making all these excuses for a man that put his hands up and and he's repentant before God and he's like, I'm so sorry, I've done this. And we see that in Psalm 51. 
But I think there's something about David being so respected in the eyes of men that it's difficult for them to see somebody like that do something so terrible. And it's easier to explain it away or to give a reason or a rationale for why he did what he did as opposed to just accepting the fact that he's just human like we are we all make mistakes there's something about that but interestingly a few weeks ago um there was a tweet by reverend benjamin creamer i don't know if you read it it was on facebook and it was on twitter and he was talking about this exact same story david machiba and the backlash, oh my God, because he came out and he said it was rape. There's no two ways about it. He he wrote a whole post about this is what it is and the, and the church needs to stop talking about it differently. And that was another, oh, thank you, Jesus moment for me. And I did have a conversation with him outside of all the stuff that was, was being said and asked him um, if he would do um, a podcast or an interview with me so that I could talk about it with a man and I'm still waiting for, for him to say if he would or not. But we, we had a quick conversation about it. From his perspective, he's like, yes, this is what it is. And he calls it out. But of course, there are other men that are not so willing to accept that narrative. In fact, one of my um, friend's husband has refused to read the novel for that reason. What can you do? Yeah, well... That's right. There's, you're, as you have pointed out in our conversation, you believe you're writing this um, for God's glory and obedience to God. And, you know, whoever reads it and whatever happens, that's in God's hands. So, uh, but you showed so much courage in writing this and using your amazing talents for storytelling to bring uh, a biblical character to life, to truly give her words um, and and the emotional um, depth that you're you plumbed in order to help us see who Bathsheba is it it just is beautiful I encourage all the listeners to get uh, becoming Queen Bathsheba um, it's it's just a terrific read thank you so much Amanda for spending time with us today on alabaster jar Thank you so much for having me. It's been it's it's been so amazing to just talk talk this through. Um, I've really enjoyed my time here, and yeah, I hope I can do it again sometime. <laughs> That'd be wonderful. Thanks for joining us on this week's episode of The Alabaster Jar. If you enjoyed our conversation with Amanda, you can learn more about her writing and purchase a copy of her new book at her website, which we have linked in today's episode description. We'll be back here next week with another brand new episode. So please subscribe and share. And thank you for listening to The Alabaster Jar.